Jesus. Amen. Well, amen. Well, good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, glad that we are able to meet together in at least this way. Uh, better than not seeing each other at all. And as, as we've pointed out numerous times, as you have as well, uh, if this happened uh, years ago, not too far in the distant past, we would have had the opportunity to meet in this way, the video conferencing that we have. So glad that you all are joining us to take advantage of that. Um, we just prayed for the offering. I want to invite you to pray with me for some requests. We have a prayer request there in the bulletin, uh, the, uh, the prayer spotlight there for pastors in the Chicagoland Gospel Network. If you're not sure what that is, it sounds more official than it is. It's local pastors that I meet with once a month, and we get together, pray together, we read through books together, and these are uh, local churches to us that are gospel-centered, uh, building the kingdom uh, uh, through healthy churches. Uh, so let's pray for them. Uh, now we'll also pray for moms uh, for Mother's Day. We also want to pray for Renata's family. Uh, if you were here for the uh, welcome uh, and announcements in the beginning um, for her loss, uh, we also want to uh, pray for our service and our time together, that it would be meaningful and that we would be able to focus on what God has for us this morning. So please join me in, in just a couple moments of, of praying together. Well, Father, one of the things that we miss, of course, is gathering together, gathering to pray in front of one another, with one another, uh, where we can easily hear each other amening. Uh, and supporting each other's prayers, uh, hearing each other pray one after the other. Right now, God, we are uniting our hearts, if not our voices, to uh, pray for the good gospel work that you're doing in the Chicago area through uh, these churches, uh, many of the pastors we know. Uh, so, God, we pray that they would continue to do uh, good work. Some of those are new churches. Some of those are ch old churches that are being revitalized. Uh, encourage these men, encourage their wives, encourage the leadership that surrounds them to uh, continue to move these churches in the right direction, to center them on the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, unabashedly, unashamedly, Lord. Uh, and we pray that in this difficult time of Zoom calls and streaming and phone calls and all the different ways that we try to connect because we can't meet in person, God, give the, these churches wisdom uh, to navigate it well and give them encouragement. And we pray that for ourselves, too, that we wouldn't grow too discouraged uh, in this time where we're isolated from each other in many ways. Uh, Father, we think of um, Renata's prayer request. Uh, we don't know who all in the family are, are believers and how, they, how well they know you. Um, oh Lord, this, this gentleman was young. And uh, we pray that in this loss, those who are Christians in the family would be able to display a kind of grieving that is different than the grief that's exhibited by the world who does not know you. And so we pray that there would be hope, a ray of light there uh, for those watching and needing that anchor of hope. I would pray for Renata that you would allow her to be uh, such a one. We know that she is. Allow her to continue to be that presence in, in her family, uh, that spiritual matriarch that we all know and love her to be. Father, we think about the fact that it's Mother's Day, and uh, even though it's not a, a biblical holiday or feast, uh, it's biblical in another sense, that we should honor our parents. Uh, we think of the author of the Proverbs reminding his son to honor his mother's teaching. So we thank you for our moms. We thank you for especially the ways that they've taught us, Wittingly or unwittingly, the wisdom that they've given us. Um, we thank you for those women in our lives who have been like mothers to us. Uh, we think of Paul uh, thinking of his uh, relationship with Timothy as a, one of a spiritual father. Uh, God, we pray that 
uh, we would appreciate those people in our lives that maybe aren't our biological moms, but uh, fit that role in a way that helps us uh, and nourishes us through your word. And Father, we pray for those moms who are moms to be, that you would prepare them now and that they wouldn't get their basic wisdom for parenting from a what to expect book, but from your book and that they would be the kind of mom that is both a biological mom and a spiritual mom, that they would be the shepherds and mentors that their children need. We pray for those who uh, not just will be, but maybe won't be, uh, those who grieve the fact that they cannot be moms. Uh, may they find their rest in you. May they find confidence in you, uh, their identity in Christ, and uh, embrace what you have for them. And so, God, we uh, think about all these different uh, prayer requests. We're thankful to you that we can even pray to you. And we pray that in the next few moments as we open your word, in the next few moments as we look at scripture, that you would speak to us, that let it not just be an exercise, God, and please limit the distractions, uh, the noises, uh, the fact that we're not all together in a sanctuary, uh, the environment can be difficult to focus. Help us out, God. We pray that uh, even though some of us had late nights, long weeks, uh, and we are, have many things that nag at our attention, uh, worries, difficulties, uh, problems, allow us to be front and center here now for your word uh, to have its way in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're moving, uh, continuing to move through First uh, John, and it's it's not a long letter, uh, but uh, once again, we'll find probably that we're not learning new things every week, but he wants to take old things, the old commandment, and bringing it in a new way, and bringing it to you in waves, kind of cascading over you over and over, so that as verses wash over you, you don't leave the basics behind. And one of those basics is one of the most beloved lines in Scripture, one of the most familiar lines in Scripture, probably one of the most quoted lines in Scripture, and it's only three words that we find in today's passage, and that is, God is love. God is love. Simple enough to say, simple enough of a statement, but profoundly dangerous when misunderstood. When we misunderstand that phrase, God is love, we run into dangers. Let me just throw a few examples, because last week we talked about the importance of doctrine. Now, today's sermon, today's passage isn't so focused on doctrine, but it comes right on the heels, right? It comes right after that paragraph we just looked at, focusing on the importance of doctrine and truth. Uh, God is love. When that is misunderstood, we can end up in dangerous places. I'll just give you a couple examples. One of them would be annihilationism. What is annihilationism? Annihilationism is the view, not born of scripture, but born of starting with love and saying, if God is love, how can he let people be punished for eternity? Maybe he'll punish them for a little while, but eventually he'll just kind of obliterate them and annihilate their existence so that they're not tortured you know, forever. They're not experiencing punishment forever. Again, scripture doesn't say that. How do people come to that conclusion? They start with this verse, God is love. Here's how I understand love. A God of love wouldn't do that. Therefore, God must not do that. And that's where they end up falling off a cliff. Another example would be open theism. And when I was young, and, you know, coming out of high school and going into college, this is something I was caught up in, and I didn't even know it was called open theism. But open theism is the idea that God doesn't know the future. How can he know the future? If he knew the future, he never would have put Adam and Eve in that trap. If he knew this world that we would live in, if he knew there would be all these diseases and viruses, murders, some guy goes out jogging and gets gunned down. If he knew this is the kind of world we would live in, he wouldn't have created it. Why? Because he's a God of love. Therefore, he must not know. 
He must be open. He must be experiencing moment by moment the way we're experiencing it. He, he keeps learning things. He's, things are new to him because had he known it before, he would have stopped it. Do they have a verse for that? Not really. What do they have? God is love. And a loving God wouldn't knowingly put someone in a situation that ends up bad. So again, you fall off the cliff if you start with just God is love, the favorite verse, the beloved verse, and it should be, but it should be love for the right reasons. This verse should be appreciated for what it is, not what we want it to be. Uh, the redefining of marriage. How do you, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's not very interesting when the world wants to redefine marriage, but when Christians want to redefine marriage, when you drive by a church and they've got, you know, the, the rainbow flag out front, with the phrase all are welcome. I mean, all are welcome at CFC, but you know what they mean by it. You can define, you're, you're welcome here and you don't have to change. You can define marriage however you want. You can define sexuality however you want. And God approves it. Why? Because a God of love wouldn't tighten the definition of marriage. A God who is love will let people be whatever they want to be. That's what love means. And those of you who are parents, um, you know uh, how far you'll get training up your child for the world, training up your child in godliness, if your tactic is by loving the child, I'm just going to let the child do whatever the child wants. And so you see that it doesn't make sense on the surface of it, but this is what gets people into trouble, gets people into cults, and gets people actually falling away from uh, the faith because they adopt something that is uh, not true to what scripture is saying, but they would quote, a verse like this to get there. But the bigger danger than all of that, bigger danger than all of that, not just doctrinal confusion, and not just what we believe, but it's how we behave. In other words, if you misunderstand the verse God is love, you won't know how to love. You will not love appropriately because you don't have an appropriate understanding of the verse that says God is love. And so if you misunderstand God's love, you can't give God's love. You can't give God's love to somebody else if you don't know what God's love is. If you have a faulty idea of what God's love is, you might think you're loving other people, but you're not. Or you might wonder why you've been a Christian for so long and you still struggle to really love other people. It might be because you have a faulty understanding of God's love in the first place. And so this is what John wants to undo. His, he wants his readers to come away from this book loving, loving one another. That, that's obvious. You, you cannot read this. It doesn't matter what translation it is. You can just read it one time through, and you're going to come away with that ringing in your ears. We should be loving people. We should be loving one another. And so he gives them the central reason why we love. We love because God is love. We love because it's who God is, but we have to let him define what that is. Let's read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so these verses are not, um, they're not long because they keep saying new things. They're long because they keep saying the same thing over and over. If you love God, then you love people. If you don't love people, guess what? You don't love God and God's love is not in you because this is what God is like. And if you are with God and God is with you and you know God and you've been born of God, then you are like what God is like and God is love. Therefore, you should be loving. And you've probably heard it put this way before, that the verse says God is love. The verse doesn't say love is God. In other words, God defines what love is. Love doesn't define what God is. And there's a big difference. You might go, well, you're just kind of changing the wording. 
Right, but if it was just at the level of wording, we wouldn't have open theism. We wouldn't have annihilationism. We wouldn't have churches redefining marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Because they begin with their concept of love and allow that concept of love to define God. But that's not what John is doing. John is using the concept of God to define love so that you know what you're supposed to be doing. There's the difference. Now look at just the first two sentences in verse 7 and 8. He says God five times. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. And whoever loves knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God, 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 God. So if you want to understand love, you have to understand God, not the other way around. And so God is the dominating term. And therefore, we allow God to tell us what love is, to show us what love is, rather than looking around us, looking into our hearts to see what we think love is, and then allowing that to define God for us. That gets us in trouble, not just doctrinally, but again, we won't know how to love people. We will not love people appropriately with an inappropriate understanding of love. So we want God to define it. What God is like, we're like. The way God loves, that's how we're supposed to love. So then the question is, how does God love? Well, what John makes it clear is God doesn't just love in name. He doesn't just love in statement, in word, but in action. And so you may have heard the, the Latin phrase, acta non verba, act, don't speak. Well, God's MO is verba et acta, which is speak and act, right? God says he's love and he shows it. He talks about love and then he walks it. And he both come together, but he puts love into action. Look at verse 9, where he says, where John says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Not that he just says so. Not that he just gave us the Bible. But what the Bible tells us happened. In this, the love of God was made manifest. This, this, he's, it's happening in front of us and among us that God sent his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. And so, uh, and then in verse 10, uh, not that we have loved God, but he loved us, sent his son and sent his son to be the propitiation. So that language of being made manifest, of God sending his son twice in those verses, uh, emphasize for us that God demonstrates love through action. He did something. So when we want to define love, we have to define it by God, not by an ethereal understanding of who God is, but through the actions that God demonstrates. He demonstrates his love, and that's how we know what love is, what God did, what God does. He sent his son into this world to be a propitiation. He sent him not to just walk around and be a good teacher and tell uh, stories and parables and heal people uh, and draw crowds. All of those things happen, but the reason why he was sent was to be a propitiation. We covered, we unpacked that term when that term first appeared earlier in, in this book, but uh, that term is looking to express the reality that we are, as Aaron was just explaining to us, we are, we are sinners. We have this weight of sin and there's this condemnation. There's this just wrath that's upon us for our sin. And Jesus came not to just show, hey, God is going to put this wrath upon you, but to say, even though this wrath is upon you, I'm going to take that wrath so you can get out. I'm going to take that punishment so you can live, right? And so that's what propitiation means. And what does that do for us? It affords a new birth, like he said in verse 7. I mean, he said it before, but he reiterates it in verse uh, 7 that those of us who are beloved of God, those of us who, are, uh, who know God, we are born of God at the end of verse 7 there. We're born of him. That means we know him. It means we have a relationship with him. And so God's love is a love that takes sin seriously. God's love is not a love that brushes sin aside. God's love is a love that understands that sin is a problem. So there's already the divergence. You want to redefine marriage, redefine sexual terms and all this kind of stuff? That's not loving. Why? 
because love doesn't brush the seriousness sin of sin aside and love doesn't solve sin by redefining it so he takes he takes sin seriously and then does something about it right that's how he demonstrated his love look at how weighty sin is look at how tight and narrow the path is we're unable to walk it we're unable to perform it we're unable to love god the way we're supposed to and he knows that and he doesn't just like wave a wand and go never mind i'm loving so who cares no it, it means his love is going to do something about the problem not not pretend the problem doesn't exist and so when we think of love as sweeping things under the carpet when we think of love as redefining terms we misunderstand god's love and that means we feel less loved by god and then we will love people less well we need to start with the problem and and how god solved it in verse 10 through sending his son through that amazing propitiation handling that wrath for us being our substitute so that we don't have to endure wrath so that we don't have to endure condemnation and then the result of it is that we might live through him as he says there that we might live through him now look around a lot of people are living there's a lot of people walking around driving around you've got neighbors you've got friends you've got people you see people out there living right he doesn't mean that God, Jesus came to be a propitiation so that people can walk around. The sign that someone has been born of God is not breathing. The sign that someone has been born of God is loving. It's a life change. Something happens inside of you and you're different than you were before. And so we love differently as a result and we live out in the world. They see this difference in us and we live out this love that God has demonstrated to us by loving. And so then in verse 11, he re reiterates the point. He makes it clear, in case you missed it, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now let me, let me help you understand something about the grammar here real quickly. We tend to take John 3:16, God so loved the world, as meaning God loved the world so much. But that's not what's happening in that verse, and that's not what's happening in this verse. It's not God loves us so much. It's God loved us in this way. It's like when you're trying to show somebody something, and they're like, I'm not sure what you mean. And you, and you show them physically, and you say, like so. And then you demonstrate what it is that you're talking about. God loved the world like so, in this way. Now, of course, it's great. It's a great love that he demonstrated, but he's not saying so much. He's saying, in this way, why is that important? The reason why that's important is because he's showing God's love as a model. In this way, we've been loved. Therefore, in this way, we love. The way God is, is the way we're supposed to be. So truly understand what this love looks like, and then do like so. And so that's his point. That's what he wants to bring home. He wants us to love. And uh, I think the problem for many of us in our struggle to really love other people, difficult people. And let's be honest, who's not difficult? You know, your best friend, your spouse, your kids, everyone's going to drive you nuts. At some point, everyone's difficult to love. That's just, we're difficult to love. We're difficult people. And what makes it difficult to love other people is when we view God as sort of a begrudging God, he begrudgingly relates to you. He's kind of like the grumpy Zeus character who's used to chucking lightning bolts, but all right, fine, I won't, I won't strike you down. I guess you can come into heaven. And it's kind of like Jesus kind of twisted his arm into it. And the father would rather be grumpy, but he'll just barely let you in, you know? Like the grumpy dad that's too busy to spend time with his son, but the son keeps begging, begging, and then the dad is like, oh, and the whole time is frustrating, and he cuts it short because he's got to go back and do what he'd rather do. And then we take that image, and we put it on God. That's what my dad was like. That's what my mom was like, right? And then that must be what God is like. And when we think of God that way, that's how we'll love. We'll love begrudgingly. We'll be grumpy. We'll have a hard time with difficult people right? Because that's how we view God. 
God barely let you in. You know, you try to pray and it feels like God doesn't listen to you. Well, why should you listen to other people? You can't be a good listener because God's not a good listener in your mind, in your view. And so what John is trying to do is build up your view of what God's love is like and allow that to be the source for how you love other people. None of us are springs of love. We're only channels. We, we can't be the source of love. So we need to get to the source so we can be a channel of love to other people. That means we have a, a need to have a better understanding of that source. And the way to do that is to look to the cross and understand what propitiation is. Not go, God is love. God, love is from God. And then propitiation, eh, like kind of fast forward past that. That's the whole key. Understanding the cross is to understand how God loves. He loves like so. And when we understand the cross, then we can have the proper orientation to love other people, even when it's difficult. Why? Because we shouldn't be loved by God. We don't deserve love, but he gives it anyway. And so you can't give the love of God if you're not convinced that you are loved by God. And I wonder if some of us are living lives where we're not really convinced God loves you. You've heard the sermons, God loves people, God so loved the world. God loves you. He's demonstrated his love for you on the cross. And so if you're part of the Christian community, and you're the beloved, right? And you understand the gospel, then you know that God has set his love upon you in a way that is uh, unfathomable, that his son would take wrath that he didn't deserve for people who did deserve it. And when you understand that, that God loves you, and some of you maybe just, you don't need a new sermon, you don't need another book on doctrine, you just need to be reminded God loves you. Do you believe that? I mean, do, do, do you understand the weight of that? Does that make you feel cringy or awkward? because your parents never said I love you, or they didn't demonstrate love to you in any of the love languages, right? You struggle with it. It's weird. You have a hard time telling your own spouse, I love you. You have a hard time maybe telling your own kids, I love you, because it wasn't told to you. And so there's something broken inside, right? And so when you read a verse like this, God is love, it's just like for other people. You've got to own it for yourself, because if you can't, if you can't become convinced of God's utter love for you, you'll have a hard time loving other people. This is not a go and do sermon. It's a believe and then go and do. It has to start with your understanding of God's love, that it's not for others. It's not hot for others and like begrudging for you, that it's for you. And when you understand that, you can love a love that displays to the world love the way God displayed it to us. Look at 12, verses 12 to 17. No one has ever seen God. Uh, I, I love, something I do like, a, a love, a really appreciate about John's writing style. I know he's really repetitious and everything like that. But he just comes in out of nowhere with concepts. And you're like, we weren't talking about seeing God. What are you talking about? No one asked the question. None of us, asked, you know, we're not like, but what about, has anyone seen God? Um, why is he bringing this in? Well, it makes total sense when you read it. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, no one has seen God like physically. Well, how is the world going to see God? When you love the way God loves, that's how they see him. That's how the world is given eyes to see the gospel. It's when we love the way God has loved us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now look at all this abiding language, right? How is the world going to see God's love? This intermingled uh, union between us and God that produces this love. By this, we know that we abide in him and that God abides in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent, there's the sent piece again, sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he abides in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides, remains, dwells in love, abides, remains, 
dwells in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. No one's ever seen God, but they'll see him when we are to the world the way God is toward us. And we will never be the way we're supposed to be toward the world if we don't understand how God is toward us. So we return to the cross over and over for that appreciation and understanding of what happened uh, at propitiation, what happened at the cross. So love displays to the world what God has displayed to us. And think about this fact that when God sent his son, verse 14, sent his son, verse 9, sent his son, verse 10, that shows that God goes and loves before the object of his love deserves it. In other words, the, when we think about the way God loves the world, the way God lo has loved us, he loved us by sending his son before our deserving his son. I mean, we never do deserve his son. If he waited for us to deserve Jesus, Jesus would have never been sent. Jesus, God loves by loving before the love is earned. God loves by loving, sending his son to the enemy, sending his son into a dark world that wants to stamp out the light of Jesus Christ. And he uses that love to change uh, things so that light overcomes darkness. And that means that the world needs to see that kind of love, a kind of love that doesn't wait for deservingness, a kind of love that moves first, beats to the punch, and not waiting for the person to earn it or deserve it. And so this is how God perfects love in verse 12 and in verse 17. You see how in 12 and in 17, you've got this concept of love being perfected? How is love perfected? Love is perfected, uh, the ultimate kind of love, the, uh, the paramount exemplar of what love is, right? You can't get any better than this. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. It's the sacrifice. Propitiation is the ultimate expression of love. And so that's how God perfects the love, and he perfects it with this abiding that we see. God dwelling in us and us dwelling in God, not just for us. This abiding in us and us abiding in him is not just for us, but it is for the world. It's for the watching world. And he says at the end of verse 17, because as he is, so also are we in the world. People are watching. People see us. They even hate us. But we love them. That's the kind of love that is uh, born in us. and developed in us as we appreciate the kind of love that God has set upon us. And so as we think about loving, we need to think about loving as not based on the people that we're supposed to love. It's not based on them, it's based on us, our undeservingness. So rather than waiting for someone to deserve our love, we recognize that we don't deserve love. So it's not other person-centered in that sense. It starts here in the sense that I recognize I don't deserve God's love and God gave it to me. Therefore, I don't wait for someone else to deserve the love that I give to them. What a simple concept, right? This is Christianity basics. This is Christianity 101. We don't wait to be loved to love. We should be the first ones to go to our neighbors and see how they're doing. We should be the first ones to cross that bridge when there's a gap in a relationship. If there's people out there, you're just waiting for them to contact you because they owe you an apology. Maybe they owe you the apology. And yeah, rightfully, they should be the ones to come out and try to extend the olive branch. But then that makes love easier, right? And that's not what God did. God didn't wait for us to reach out to him. He reached out to us when we, had not, we didn't want anything to do with him. And that is the kind of love God wants us to exhibit. A love that isn't deserved. A love that isn't earned. A love that starts with us, not waiting for someone else to start it. We're supposed to be the peacemakers. We're supposed to be the ones that are uh, missionaries of God's love, thinking about how God sent love into a world that didn't deserve it. 
And so we want to love other people before it makes sense to do it. We want to love people in a way where other people at work are going to ask you, why in the world are you being nice to this person? Why in the world are you being kind to this person? Why in the world are you doing favors for this person? They don't deserve it. They should wonder. But if the only kind of love we exhibit is the same kind of love everyone else at work does, well, he did it for me, so I'm going to do it for him. Uh, you know, he, uh, if I scratch his back now, maybe he'll scratch my back later. So they don't deserve it now, but I'm still waiting for another shoe to drop where they will deserve it and will be, kind of be even. That's how the world loves. If you can love people who are unable to give it back to you, that's a demonstration that's a little clearer to the world of the kind of love that we've been shown. And when they ask, we can point them to the cross and not go, oh, it was easy. You know, no, it wasn't easy. Uh, but God loving me wasn't easy either. Jesus had to suffer for it. And so I want to extend that kind of love to others, not based on whether they deserve it, but based on the fact that I don't deserve it. You may have seen in verse 17, he throws another one in there, right? Because he's like, no one's ever seen God. And you're like, why is he talking about that? Well, why is he bringing up judgment? In verse 17, he kind of just throws it in there, right? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And then he finishes the thought, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Now, why does he want to bring in judgment? Judgment day. I mean, <laughs> what does that have to do with love, John? No one was asking that. It's like he was writing this and getting text messages from his youth group about, you know, random questions. If you've ever led a youth group before, questions can be random sometimes, not just youth group and any setting. And it's like, he's just, he's just checking his Facebook feed and questions are popping in. He's like, oh, let's talk about judgment now. But it's, it's very streamlined actually, because what John is recognizing is if you don't understand what love has done about judgment, then you don't understand love the way you're supposed to understand it. And again, if you can't get what God's love is really all about, you can't give it. So what does judgment have to do with it? Well, we understand that judgment isn't popping up out of nowhere here. Judgment was introduced when John used the word propitiation in verse 10. Again, what is propitiation? Wrath that's supposed to be upon you, condemnation that's supposed to be upon you, and Jesus comes and takes that judgment on your behalf, right? So the theme of judgment doesn't just appear here. It appears when, when he brought up the, the, the fact of propitiation. And we know there is a day coming. There is a day coming when Jesus will wrap things up, conquer all of evil, and be the, the conquering king, the, the judge with blazing eyes, riding, riding the white horse, and handle business. And so that he will dole out the condemnation that is, that is appropriate for a, a wicked world that rejects him, hates him. But we've been saved from that, right? Jesus is our Savior, as John says, because uh, God has set his love upon us in that way and been the propitiation for us. Then we're going to love differently. Let me put it to you this way. I think the... the to encapsulate this entire passage this morning. We will love intensely when we understand the intensity of God's love for us. And we need to reckon with the judgment theme to get it. The, the intensity with which you will love others is directly affected by how you view the intensity of God's love toward you. You will never love the world intensely. If, you don't, if you're not convinced that you are intensely loved by God. Now, why do I say intensely? Well, because I think that's why John is bringing up judgment. Do you realize how intense this, this love is? You should be judged. You're supposed to be judged. He's a just God. He can't just pretend sin doesn't exist. We're not, we can't go back in time and undo the things we've done, unsay the things we've said, right? So what does God do about it? He doles out judgment. He doles out wrath, but he puts it on his son instead of me. He puts it on his son instead of you. That's how judgment is taken care of. And so if we understand that kind of intensity, we can love other people. And I think that's what he's going on about in these next couple of verses, verse 17 and verse 18. Check it out. 
By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now he wants to unpack that. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now here's a couple different ways that this passage, this verse 18, is taken out of context. One, someone would say, well, see, love means God doesn't punish. That's not what John says. John says love here means that God should punish, but still found a way out by punishing his son instead of you. He does punish. This doesn't mean love doesn't punish. It means love finds a way out of punishment by putting the punishment on Jesus Christ. That's radically different than reading this haphazardly and, and coming to the conclusion that love means no punishment. If I really love my kids, I'll never punish them. You know that's wrong. You know that makes no sense. And we're not better parents than God. That's the point that the author of Hebrews makes when we looked at that on, on Good Friday, that a good father disciplines his children because he loves them, because he's a good father. And so, of course, this doesn't mean that love there's no room for punishment with love. It just means that love finds a way through it, finds a way out of it in Jesus Christ. Another way that this is misunderstood is that, uh, you know, it's just a general fear. You have a fear of bears. You have a fear of sharks. You have a fear of the dark. You have a fear of, you know, enclosed spaces. You have a fear of whatever phobia you might have. But if you, if you love God, if you're a Christian, then those fears kind of go away. You don't fear boogeymen anymore. You can walk and jog at night, no one around you, even through a terrible neighborhood, because love casts out fear. No, that's just dumb, right? Fear is a mechanism that God has given us. It makes sense. If you're walking in the wood and you see a bear, you're not like, oh, the love of God, and you kind of wave like a, you know, like a Christian, you know, uh, symbol at the at the bear or something like that. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. So what does it mean, love casts out fear? It doesn't mean it eliminates fear from your life. You should be fearful enough to drive uh, with a seatbelt on and look both ways before you cross the street. Some fear is good. If you hear someone walking behind you, you should turn around and check out what that noise is. Uh, if you hear a window break downstairs, you might want to call 911. This isn't uh, idiocy. The fear that John is talking about is specifically the fear of punishment. When Jesus shows up on that white horse, are you going to cheer or cower? That's the difference. And if you're like, man, I've got some sins that I just don't think even God can forgive me. You can't cheer when Jesus comes on the horse. You're going to be fearful. And the reason why you're going to be fearful is not because it's true that God can't forgive that thing in your life. It's because it's, it's uh, you believe it. No matter what you've done, no matter what weight and condemnation looms over you, and rightly so, if you understand propitiation, you understand that Jesus nailed it to the cross. He took care of it so that you don't fear judgment. The reason why you don't fear judgment is because of the Savior that was sent, 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 made manifest, sent into this world and did something about that punishment. None of us lack a fear of Judgment Day because of our track record. All of us would fear Judgment Day because of that. It's because of what the cross means, what Jesus did on the cross, that we don't fear judgment. So what, what does that have to do with, with loving people? What does that have to do with love? Well, it defines love for us. Because if we don't understand how God took care of judgment, we'll still fear judgment. And if we try to love people out of fear of judgment, it won't really be the kind of love that God is telling us about. How many of us might end the sermon, end the service and go, okay, I'm supposed to love. God demands it. God wants it. It's what God does. And I'm supposed to do it. And if I don't do it, I, I must be out. I'm not a Christian and God's going to give me punishment. And so I better do it. That's how a non-Christian would respond to the sermon. Loving people out of fear that if they don't love people appropriately, God won't love them. That's wrong. That's wrong. 
God loves first, or none of us would be here. All of us are perfect, perfectly uh, rifle to fear punishment and to fear condemnation. But God loves first, and he solved it first. And rather than responding to the sermon by going, darn it, I'm supposed to love people. I've got to get out there and love people. Otherwise, I'm in trouble with God. You'll never love people rightly. You cannot love people out of fear, out of fear of judgment. You cannot just love people out of the sheer I'm supposed to because law looms over your head. You love people because you're born of God. You love people because a kind of love has been displayed to you first, and that kind of love changes you. And so, of course, it's our duty to love people, but we don't do it out of sheer duty and sheer fear uh, of punishment. But rather, we love people because we've been relieved of the punishment. That is, that is a major difference, to love people out of what's been afforded to us, not love people so that hopefully something could be afforded to us. When we reverse that, we love clumsily and we love partially, but we love the way anyone else would love. And it's difficult to give people an undeserving kind of love. Rather, he wants us to understand that perfect love casts out fear. How? I don't know if when I was a younger Christian, I really understood that, that love casts out fear. I don't get it. What he means is the cross took care of your fear. Your fear is death. Your fear is condemnation. And Jesus' love on the cross, demonstrating on the cross, took care of that death, took care of that condemnation. That's how love casts out fear, through the cross. And so the cross defeats death. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? Do you, do you, do you, are you overwhelmed by this kind of love? It's offered to you. And I just want to make it clear that I don't assume everyone on a Zoom call, even if we were all in person at church and I was just seeing all your faces, uh, I wouldn't assume that everyone knows God the way they're supposed to. You know him through Jesus Christ. You confess Christ that he's done this uh, act of propitiation for you, this wrath blocking that he did. He took it for you so it can be blocked for you. And I want to invite you to know him. I want to invite you to embrace that kind of love for you, not because your grandmother is a Christian, not because you used to go to a Christian camp when you were a little kid, not because you like the people at CFC and you just like to hang out. There's a lot of great benefits to being in a Christian community, but you have to reckon with the fact that you don't deserve love and that God doles it out anyway in Jesus Christ. Then you can love. Then you can give the kind of love we're supposed to give. You can't give what you don't grasp. You can't make known what you don't know. To love like God, you have to know what God's love is like. And so the center of it is the cross. We will love intensely, not cheaply. We'll love intensely when we understand how intensely God loves us. Look at how he closes just with his last couple verses, uh, 19, 20, and 21. And he makes it clear, if God's love is real to us, we will love real people in real ways. He wants to bring this down to earth, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Verse 20 is looking to align our mouths with our hearts. The things that if we, we talk about God's love, we have to do it. We have to demonstrate it. Why? Because God didn't just talk about love. He demonstrated love. Therefore, we talk about love, but we also have to demonstrate what we're talking about. And he just brings up the irony, right? How can you love God? You don't see him. But you claim but you claim to, and then you have someone, your brother, right in front of you. You see real needs right in front of you. And what you see with your own physical eyes, you don't respond in love. He's saying, well, then you don't really see God. And so what he's wanting us to understand is for the world to see God, we have to see them. You don't bypass people's needs in front of you. 
people in need of love around you. You don't just bypass that. You see it. And when they see that you see them, they know that you've seen God. God's love is made real to a watching lost world when we make God's love real to them, not just by preaching to them, but through our actions. They see something has happened in this person's life. This is not normal. This is not a normal kind of love. This is different. This is radical. This is otherworldly. This is sent from out of the world into the world. And it feels alien to them because it is. As he reiterates the point in verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, this whole concept of love, it's cheapened um, by its repeated use, uh, by people constantly quoting it out of context to approve things that actually demonstrate that they don't love God and the love of God is not in them. And it's so easy for us to kind of tune out verses like this because it's like, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're about to be in chapter five and it's, I get it, love, love, love. Do we get it though? And the way to really get it, to test whether you get it, is to see how well you love people in your life that disagree with you, that are even jerks to you. And you make the first move, the second move, the third move, right? Even when they don't respond in love, you act toward them in a posture of love. And if we're unable to do that, it's not because we just don't have the gene, right? It's because we need to return to the cross and get a better appreciation for how radically, how intensely God has loved us then we can be the channels of God's love to other people. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the simple truths that John puts in front of us, recycling them, reiterating them, repeating them, reemphasizing them, so that we don't just blow past it. We want to be a loving people. And we want you to define love for us we don't want to define you by what we think love is. So as we read scripture, as we see the gospel across all of its pages, as we see your mission to send Jesus on our, uh, into this world to die on our behalf, to rise from the dead, to conquer death on our behalf, to ascend to you so that we would be glorified one day uh, and be completely rid of sin and all of its uh, trappings. Lord, that is something that is afforded to us by your sheer love and mercy and grace. Help us to have a deeper understanding of that, to not hold the gospel flippantly, but to plumb its depths, uh, to allow the weight of it to sit on our hearts, to change it, and to break what's hardened and stiff so that it can beat again, or for the first time, anew with the love that abides in us because you abide in us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's close uh, in a song together.